Thanks, Helen, for leading our time of prayer this morning. And I'll be honest with you, this, the, uh, the series that we are starting this morning, I've been really challenged on this week. It's a series which uh, I've been really looking forward to, but as events have played out in the news this week, I've watched them and I've, I've really struggled with certain aspects of the series that I've been putting together. It's been a learning curve for me. And it's been a reminder of the importance of the old adage to practice what you preach. But to begin with, I want to talk about words. I remember when, when, I, was, when I was a kid, primary age, and one Christmas... Um, I got a collection of books, and I was over the moon. I can't remember what they were. They were some sort of adventure books. And I'm uh, sitting there reading them and really getting engrossed. And my dad had got a book as well. And the book he'd got was a dictionary. Now, when you're primary age, you think, what a pointless, dull present to give someone. A book of words. Well, all books have words in, but this one just, the words don't seem to make sense. There's no story, there's no plot, there's no characters. It's just words. And I remember my dad sitting there reading the dictionary. And I was thinking, what, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? You've got all these bookcases of books that have got, you know, interesting stories in and, and funny stories and uh, emotional stories, all these adventures. You've got great stuff. And you choose to sit there and read a book which seems to be the driest, dullest, most boring read known to man. And so I, I felt morally obliged to challenge him on the subject. And he said, don't ever stop growing your vocabulary and learning. Because the more you understand language, the better your ability to communicate. And communication is everything. Now, all of us in here, I hope, I think I'm right in saying, to some degree can speak English. We have others who can speak other languages. Um, I myself am, uh, only speak the one language. Um, some people ha can speak many, many languages, and I'm always incredibly impressed whenever anybody can speak more than one language. I think, wow, that's, that's, just, that's just remarkable, very impressive. Um, but how well do we actually know the language that we speak? Well, most people have a, a, a vocabulary of several, um, several thousand words. It's, it's a, you know, an impressive amount, but we actually use a very small proportion of the vocabulary that we, that we have on a daily basis. And so I, was, I, was, um, I picked up a dictionary this week, and um, I had a look, and I realised that actually there's an awful lot of words that I don't know in my own language. Um, and then I decided, right, let's do a quick test this morning. So I've just got, I've got just three, we're just doing three, we could have done, we could have done loads, there are an awful lot, but just three words which, um, which in, in the English language, which I'd be interested to know if anybody here can tell me what they mean. Um, for those of you that got here early this morning and saw me running through the slides, I know who you are. <laughs> mm. So, first of all, snollygoster. Anybody ever heard the word snollygoster? It's a great word, isn't it? Snollygoster. What a fun word to say. I love that. Snollygoster. Anybody ever heard of it? Has it a guess what it might mean? No? Okay. 
a shrewd or unprincipled person. So it's, it's an insult, I suppose, in a way. A snollygoster. Store that one up. You get, my challenge to you, get these in conversation this week. Next one. A tokolosh. Oh, we've got, we've got a hand. Do we know what a tokolosh is? Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly so sort of a, a gremlin type of little mythical creature that, that, that in folklore people are, people are scared of, yeah. And it originates from South Africa. Um, absolutely. So there you go. In African folklore, a mischievous and lascivious hairy water sprite. Yeah. So, before you go to bed... Check under the bed for tokoloshes. Okay, okay, last one. Last one, a noctambulist. Oh, you, you've been reading my notes. What's, a no, any, anybody else? All right, we've got, we've got another hand, Elizabeth. Ah, very good, very good. A noctambulist is a sleepwalker. Yes, absolutely. So, there are three words there. Now, okay. I must admit, you've, you've beaten me. Two out of the three, you knew. But I've never heard the word snollygoster or tokolosh or noctambulist used in, in conversation, in general conversation. And there are loads and loads of words that we... Well, they're in our dictionary, but we don't use them on a regular basis because we're not familiar with them. We don't know what they mean. And if we don't know what something means, then for fear of looking a bit, a bit stupid, we don't use the word, and that's quite right. But it can work the other way around as well, can't it? Sometimes we can use a word so often, become so familiar with it, that we forget its significance. We forget what it means. We forget its, its power and what it represents. So I just wonder what springs into your minds when you see this word. Grace. That is one of the most mind-blowing, powerful, meaningful, significant words in the English language. Grace. Now, I don't want to go into definitions and agreeing what it means. Sometimes you'll hear somebody, you may have been watching the Winter Olympics a couple of weeks ago and seeing an ice dancer gliding across the ice and you might have said, wow, he moves with such grace. She's so graceful in the way that she glides. It might have been that someone has graced you, you with their presence. That can often be used in a sarcastic um, sarcastic meaning, but it, it can also be, it was, it was so nice to see them. They, they, they graced me with their presence. I feel honoured to have spent time with that person. The Bible talks a lot about grace. And the reason the Bible talks a lot about grace is because the Bible is very, very clear that as Christians, we must not miss Grace. We must not miss grace in the world around us, and we must not miss the importance of living a life that exudes grace. You see, essentially, grace 
means getting something for free that you don't deserve, or freely giving something when it is not deserved. Grace cannot be earned. As soon as we earn something, it ceases to be grace. Grace, by its very nature, cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. It cannot be something which we set out to achieve. Grace is something which is, which is given freely. I came across a quote this week which demonstrates the complete opposite of grace. Someone who has completely missed grace. Some of you will recognize the picture here. This is uh, Michael Bloomberg. Very, very wealthy man, incredibly wealthy man, very successful entrepreneur. And um, he's been mayor of New York. Um, he actually ran for uh, part of the, um, the early stages of the presidential race, you may remember. Very influential man. He's got power, he's got influence, he's got wealth. In an interview with the New York Times in April 2014, um, I came across an article in which it says, pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, let's just cut through the sheer arrogance of that statement, put that to one side for a minute, and let's just recognize the complete failure to understand grace. No one with that attitude is going to get very, very far past the gates of heaven. That is a complete failure. Grace is not something that we can earn, no matter how many billions of dollars we might have, no matter how many millions of people might have voted for us, no matter what massive decisions we've made, what impact we have on the world. I remember... Bloomberg TV being on in the, in the receptions of various different, different um, broking houses and insurance uh, companies that I used to go and visit when I was a broker. And you'd walk in and there'd be all the, the stock market figures coming across the screen and everything. And I'd normally go and ask them to put only fools and horses on instead. But people, people would go in and they'd watch this. You know, this guy's got serious influence. He's seriously powerful. And yet, grace is an alien concept. In 1 Timothy 15, Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, a series on grace could spend four weeks looking at the doctrine of grace and teaching about what grace is and talking about different theologians that have given different, different ideas um, contributing to the doctrine of grace. And, but that's a bit like um, the old saying that when you have to explain a joke, it's like dissecting a frog. You can do it, but you kill the thing in the process. When we start dissecting grace, breaking it down into its components and, and explaining each one, we miss we miss the essence of grace. Paul writes here something which only in the past couple of weeks have I really noticed. He writes, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now I've read that passage, that verse, many, many times, and I'm sure you have too. 
But I noticed something. I had one of those experiences where you really feel God suddenly sort of giving you a slap around the face and saying, no, read it. And I read it again several times, and I was really struck by one word. And it's the third to last word in that sentence, am. I've always read this verse and thought, Paul is talking about, he's referring to the fact that before he was converted, before he had his, his, his revelation on the Damascus Road, he was certainly present at the execution of Stephen. We know that. Scripture says that he, he was holding the coats. It's not stretching the imagination too far to imagine him getting caught up in the frenzy and picking up a rock himself. We know that he was on his way to Damascus to, to, to take arrest warrants, to hunt down followers of the way, early Christians. And I've always thought that when he, did, when he identifies himself as the worst of sinners in this verse, he's referring to that. But then it suddenly struck me recently that he doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. This isn't a past statement. This isn't looking back. Paul writes, I am the worst of sinners. To understand grace, we have to unpack that statement a little bit. Paul says, I am. So despite meeting Jesus, seeing the light, being blinded for three days, despite all that, despite the conversion, despite the revelation of, of, of who Jesus was through scripture, despite planting churches, writing letters, debating in synagogues, preaching on street corners, being hounded out of towns, being beaten to the point almost to death, despite the shipwrecks and despite the floggings and despite the court cases, despite the broken um, uh, relationships and the, the upset people that is hurt, despite all of that and more, all of that that was done to serve God in the name of Jesus, Paul still says, I know the worst of sinners. It's me. This is Paul. He wrote half the New Testament, for goodness sake. This is Paul. How can he possibly identify himself as the worst of sinners? What he also says there, he is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That's not just full acceptance by him. He's not just speaking to himself. That's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance by all of us. You see, we know this. We are all sinners. That should not be news to any one of us. But we have a way, don't we, of kind of explaining away our sin. I'm a sinner, but... I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. I'm a sinner, yeah, but I've never... We have a way of comparing ourselves, of justifying. I'm a sinner, but wouldn't you have done the same? You see, when I look at my own life and I say, am I the worst of sinners? You know, I've look around the world, you've got... Vladimir Putin, right now. Historically, we've had, we've had name after name after name of people who have been responsible for the deaths of millions 
They've committed appalling acts. There are people who you look at and you think they're pure evil. I'm not the worst of sinners. I'm a sinner, yeah, but I'm the worst of sinners. No way, I'm not having that. But then, when I stop and think about it, what do I know about their sin? I read the headlines, I might read the history books. I might read what other people have written about them, but I've never met any of those individuals. I don't know what they're like. I don't know the daily sin that they commit, but I do for me. I know every last angry, hateful thought that has passed through my mind. I know every word that has come out of my mouth. I know every act. I know every last detail about my life. I know my sin inside out. Who am I to judge anybody else? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That is an intimately personal statement. When we get to the point where we can say those words, we might have tears flowing down our face, we might be on our knees, we might be looking into the mirror, or we might not be able to bring ourselves to look at, look at ourselves. But at that moment, at that moment, when we have put aside the justification and the explanation and the, yeah, but wouldn't you have done the same thing? Yeah, but I'm not as bad as put aside the excuses and the nonsense. When we have confronted the depth of our sin, we then meet grace. Because despite all that, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Therefore, Jesus came for me. We suddenly meet Jesus. We suddenly experience grace. Suddenly that word that we've become over-familiar with and that we throw around in church so often, which is a beautiful word and a wonderful thing, but we suddenly meet grace afresh for the first time. I want us to read now a passage from John's Gospel. If you have a Bible with you, it's John chapter 4, starting at verse 4. And this is it's a very well-known passage. We see Jesus talking with the woman at the well. John chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you, knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus then turned, sorry, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. So in that, in that passage there, we see grace. We might not have it described like that by name, but it's there from Jesus. And so... Excuse me. We see Jesus meeting this lady. And the first thing that strikes us is Jesus had to go to Samaria. This was, this was part of God's plan. This was part of Jesus' planned journey. Sometimes we, we can read certain events that take place in Jesus' life, and, and it almost, almost seems, well, that was a stroke of luck. The, he was there in the right place at the right time, just when the right person who needed to meet him was there. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Now, maybe the roads were busy, maybe it was the only well for a long way, maybe there was a reason, but I suspect that Jesus knew, he just felt that the Father was calling him to be at that well at that time. He goes there, and he waits. He knows full well that he hasn't got his own bucket or receptacle that he can use to draw water. 
He waits. And this woman arrives, and a Jewish man did not talk to a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman did not serve a Jewish man. The two should not have been talking, let alone one asking the other for a drink. And she's confused. And so they have this this conversation. I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. I, I can't get you a drink. Besides, you've got nothing to draw water with. But Jesus, yes, he's tired. We see the fully man in the sense that he's tired and he wants a drink and he sits by the well. But then we see the fully God in the... When she starts talking about water, he's not interested in the physical nourishment, the the physical quenching of the physical thirst. He's interested in her. He's interested in introducing her to the love of God, in introducing her to a change of life, in giving her an opportunity to change giving her an opportunity to recognize grace. But before we can recognize grace, as we've just seen in that statement we looked at from Paul, we have to recognize our own sin. Jesus didn't beat around the bush. Sometimes he could be quite blunt. Sometimes I think, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. Other times I think, I'm not so sure. I think it'd be a bit uncomfortable. I think it'd be a bit painful. I think I'd come away feeling very uncomfortable having spent time with Jesus because they talk about the living water. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If, you, if we know Jesus, if we know Jesus, we ask for living water. And this living water that Jesus talks about, it's grace. Because when we, when we have grace, when we recognize grace, when we stand before God and identify ourselves as the chief of sinners, and we recognize that God sent his son into the world to save sinners, when we are prepared to, to open ourselves and humble ourselves and stop looking around for excuses and instead just say to God, This is me. And then recognize that God says, I know it's you. I know everything about you. Jesus says to this woman, go go and get your husband and bring him back. And she says, oh, I've not got a husband. And he said, no, you've had five though, haven't you? Oh, can you imagine how she felt? Crushed, embarrassed, horrified. Oh my goodness, I didn't think you knew. This is, I want to get away, this is awful. Even strangers know my shame. The reason I've come out to the well in the heat of the day rather than first thing in the morning or last thing at night when everyone else does it is because I want to avoid people that know me. I don't want conversation. I don't want people seeing me. I don't want the tongues wagging. I've had five husbands and now I'm seeing a fella who might be number six, but he's not my husband. Jesus confronts it head on. You want this living water? Yeah, go get your husband. I haven't got one. No, but you've had five, and the one you're with at the moment isn't your husband. In other words, yeah, give me this grace. Do we see this a lot? I think we do. 
I'd love, I'd love it. All this good news, good news, good news. Give me, give me the grace. I really want the grace. Great. Go and get your husband. Oh. Oh, I thought, we've really got to go there before I... Oh. A friend of mine who's on a faith journey, which is brilliant. It's a wonderful thing to see. But we had a conversation a little while ago and... We were talking about heaven, and we were talking about who we might meet in heaven, and he was incredibly uncomfortable with some of the people that you might meet in heaven. Because I said, you know, we, we don't know. We don't know um, what people's relationship with God is like. And from an earthly, worldly point of view, we, we can look at people. They might be international leaders, or they might be personal acquaintances, and we can think, there's no way. But it's not down to us to judge It's not down to us to judge. When we get to heaven, we should look around us and we shouldn't be surprised by anybody we see there. The biggest surprise we should have in heaven is that we are there ourselves. That is the thing that should surprise us the most because we know ourselves more than we know anybody else and we have no right to to put ourselves in the seat of judgment. Instead, we should sit ourselves before that seat with God there and allow him to hear our heart and then to receive the gift of grace, the gift of this living water. This woman had come to draw water from the well, but the well that Jesus speaks about that she constantly returned to for security, for reassurance, was the well of relationships. Five husbands and counting. Maybe she was insecure. We don't know anything about her. We don't know her background, but we do know that that she kept on coming back to the well of relationships, and every time one failed, she'd dive in for another one. Sometimes it's good for us just to pause and ask ourselves, what is the well that we go to draw from to quench the thirst that we feel? For some people, it might be going into the bookmakers. The next, the next bet. The next, the next good odds. It might come in. And if it comes in, then I'll make a few hundred quid. And with that, I can then put it on that. And if that comes in, I'll make a few grand. And suddenly, things are looking up and things will be okay. I'm only two or three bets away. And then when that first one fails and that dream dies... There's another route and another route and another route and they keep drawing from the well of the next bet. Or it might be the next, the next moment that triggers the anger and you feel anger building up and you go to the well of aggression and you go to the next person that you can beat and you can say, no, do it my way. And you can take it out on someone and you can walk away with your knuckles cracked and bleeding but knowing you've taught them a lesson. It might be the anger that you keep drawing from to give you that sense of having done something in life. You might be chasing the next promotion at work. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. It's a good thing. And, <laughs> Kath, I'm not having a dig about being a manager. It's good news. But, you see, if that becomes our sole focus in life, if we become so focused on our career that we neglect our family and our home and our friends and our God then the promotion at work becomes an unnecessary distraction. 
It might be status symbols. It might be, it might be qualifications. It might be something, um, something darker like pornography or, or drink. It might be flirting with the barmaid at the pub or the bloke at the gym. It might be, it might be chasing power at work and, and inf- uh, using that power to, to, to flex your muscles. It might be the well of self-pity and constantly looking back to the past and reminding ourselves of past hurts. It might be anything, and it will be different for each and every one of us. But we need to recognize when there is a well in our lives that we keep going back to, that we keep revisiting, that we keep drawing from, because the, 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 the thirst that quenches is superficial and short-term. But through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the invitation to draw from the well of living water, never, never ends. That invitation is always there. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water, so the physical water in the well, will be thirsty again. Of course. I had a cup of tea this morning. I'm thirsty again now. Of course that happens. But whoever drinks The water I give, says Jesus, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So we talk about about pouring out, about giving, giving out spiritually, about investing in people, about sharing with people. Well, that's because when we've truly humbled ourselves before God, when when we've drawn from the well of living water, this stream of living water is flowing into us and out of us overflowing because through the grace of God he's given us this water, this gift that never ends. At the end of that passage we see in verse 25 the woman says I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus does an interesting thing. This cereal um, (laughs) man-eater, this lady who has been shunned by her own society, who is embarrassed to be out to see people, who goes at the, the, the wrong time of day to draw water from the well, this lady, Jesus says to her, it's me. I am he. I'm, I who speak to you am he. He, is, he identifies himself to this lady. Now, there are very few times in Scripture where Jesus so clearly and so, so absolutely without any doubt says to somebody, I am the Messiah. He identifies himself to this lady. This lady was, was pretty low in the society of the day. Jesus went to her and he said, yeah, I am the one that will give you these streams of living water. And she goes back, having been so moved and so, so amazed by this conversation. She goes back and tells people what's happened. Suddenly the shame has gone. Suddenly the, the, the desire to keep away from people has gone. She goes back into the town and she, she, she knocks on doors or shouts in the street. She gains attention. 
It's the last thing that she would have wanted before, before she met Jesus. That is the last thing she would have wanted. She would have checked that there was no one in the street, gone scuttling out to the well, filled up the, the jars that she had, gone scuttling back and shut herself indoors with her new fella. Because she knew what people thought. But now she doesn't care what people think because she's encountered Jesus. Praise God indeed. So there we have the slide that I should have brought up when I started talking about which well we draw from. But I, I think it's more important sometimes that we focus on the word. But you know what a well looks like. And just ask yourself this week, is there a well that I go to before I go to Jesus? When I'm feeling dissatisfied with the world, when I'm feeling sad or lonely or desperate or unsuccessful or shunned, or whatever it might be, what well do I go to to draw from? And hopefully, as we go through this series together, thinking of the grace of God and what grace looks like, how we experience grace, hopefully, rather than going to that well, we will instead encounter the living water of God that knows the highest heights, the lowest lows, the deepest depths, the most staggering beauty. And through that water, we experienced the grace of God. In Isaiah, we read, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What Jesus offers the water he offers is from the well of salvation that Isaiah spoke of. I'm sure some of us this week will be doing our best not to draw from the well of sadness as we read the headlines in the news. As Helen mentioned earlier in the prayers, the staggering loss of life that has already taken place in the past few days and looks only to escalate in days to come. The destruction of property and everything else that that we, that we can maybe fear. But let's not draw from the well of fear. Let's not draw from, from the well of pity and sadness. Instead, let's draw from the well of faith, from the streams of living water that pour out from Jesus. Let's draw. With joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Let's commit to doing that this week. Let's keep our faith strong. Let's keep our hope in Jesus. Yes, we might, we might have hope that world leaders will get around the table and bring, bring peace. Yes, we might, we might have um, hope that certain decisions will be made and that the right aid will get to the right people to save the right lives and that all, all these things are good. But ultimately, ultimately, let us draw from the well of salvation with joy, a joy that comes from knowing the eternal God. And finally, whatever we, whatever we struggle with personally, sometimes we'll struggle with international problems as we've spoken about today, but there are always personal aspects, personal barriers that prevent us from meeting and fully experiencing the grace of God. I've, I've put a list together of common ones. Guilt, regret, past mistakes, weakness, 
shame, fear, bitterness, brokenness. Some of these things might resonate with some of you. They might not. But this is not an exhaustive list. Don't think for one minute this is an exhaustive list. But please, as we go from today, as we leave this place, when we go back and whether we've got family meals, or whether we've got seeing friends, whether we've got work tomorrow, whatever we've got going on this week, just remember, the list goes on. Yeah, it does. But grace never fails. Grace never fails. Let's pray. Father God, we stand before you in awe of the grace that you show us. Father, we said at the beginning today that grace is not something that we can earn, but it is something that we can express our gratitude for. And so, Lord, as we go through this week, please help us to to be extra aware of your grace in our lives. Father, of course, there will be times when we let you down. But there will also be times when we have opportunities to show grace to other people. And Father, we pray that you will help us in those moments not to judge, not to condemn, not to to patronize or belittle, not to abuse, but instead to show grace. It will only be a, a crumb in comparison with the massive, massive grace that you've poured out on us. But Father, help us to be a people of grace. Help us to be a people who, as we are filled with your, your grace <coughs> and your living water, so too, in turn, we pour out grace. Father, we don't deserve your grace, and there are others who probably don't deserve our grace, but Father, we, we have to give it to them. Because who are we? Who are we to deny others when we have a God who loves us so much? Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this lady that we've read about today who experienced and responded to the grace of Jesus. Lord God, we know that you call us to pray for our enemies. And that's hard, especially at the moment. But help us to remember, Lord, that you only have one enemy and you've already beaten him. That victory's already won. And so, Father, our prayer today is that your grace may wash over this world afresh. That lives will be changed, that people will come to know you and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.